Good morning, everyone. All right. Let's pray. Lord, your word is good. It's perfect. And we want to receive from your word this morning. We want your word for us today. Pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what it is that your spirit is saying. That you give us eyes to see what it is you have for us. Lord, you give us a soft heart to receive your word, a soft heart, Lord, for your word to be planted. I pray, Lord, you'd have your way with us here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said? Love, yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now over the last year, we've, we've spoken quite a bit about what it means to love God with your heart. And we have looked at the idea that there is significance to the order in which you love God. There's, there's purpose and intent in, in the order that that scripture gives us. Heart, soul and mind and strength. We've looked at that and looked how there is a subsequent order to how revelation and understanding flows back and return from God through heart and soul and mind and into our, our strength. We've looked at how we must give him our heart first and how we must receive his word in our heart first. Now in all the messages that I've spoken on on that theme, I've been at pains to clarify that I do not believe that a heart-first faith is ignorant and that our mind has no part in that, that it is a mindless faith. To the contrary, I believe and the scripture is clear that God gave us our minds. He created our minds and he wants us to use our minds. In fact, he wants us to love him with our minds. In fact, Jesus taught explicitly that to love God with all of our minds is part of the greatest commandment that he has given us, as we were just reminded of. And that is what we're going to start to explore this morning. What does it mean to love God with all your mind? Let's take a let's take a step back first and and ask what does it what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? How did Jesus define love and how did he demonstrate it? 
In John 15:13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. That's how he defined it. And that's exactly what he did. He laid down his life for his friends. Not just his friends, but his enemies. Those that were opposed to him, that were opposed to the work of his father. He laid down his life for the world. What kind of love is that? His love was in the laying down, the giving up, the surrender. Father, he prayed the night before his crucifixion. Father, if you were willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now that is loving God with all your mind. Not my will, but yours be done. And that is where our true love is found too. In the laying down, the giving up, the surrender. To love God with all our mind, we must be prepared to lay down our will. To lay down our theology. To give up our doctrines. To surrender our preconceived notions of who God is. And who we are. And what his will is. What his kingdom is. To love God with our mind, we must give him all we have in our mind. Trusting him to give back what is true and cast away everything that is not. Now that doesn't mean that we have to forget or reject everything that we believe. Throwing out everything that we've learned so far. It means giving God permission to build our belief on his foundation and shape our reality. It means giving him permission to define what is true rather than doing that ourselves, which is our default position. Now, I've, I've heard it argued and I've been in the argument that the Bible defines what. It's what is true. It's all there. The Bible defines it. You just need to read the Bible. I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with the Bible. I just have a problem with interpreting it accurately. The Bible's great. It's one of God's most gracious gifts to us. God breathed. Useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible's awesome. The problem is the way we interpret the Bible and the way that we apply it. Because you can take God's beautiful, powerful, inspired word. And you can take it any which way you like. 
And I know because I'm in conversations with people who go all kinds of interesting places. And then there's me. I'm going off in all kinds of interesting places. And I'm convinced that I'm right. And my brothers and sisters are just as convinced that they're right. But we're all over the place. And we're reading from the same Bible. Well, mostly. Maybe that's a discussion for another time. But But yeah, I'm not making stuff up. I get it from the Word. And so do my devout brothers and sisters. not making stuff up. They've got scriptures to back up what they're saying. We've all got scriptures to back up what we're saying. It's good. We're saying all kinds of stuff. Take Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 as an example. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Sounds like a good word. That's a scripture that slave owners and pro-slavery pastors in the American South used to justify, justify the African slave trade up until the 19th century when it took a war to pull that down. And it might have pulled down the institution, but it didn't pull down the spirit and the heart of it. Titus 2.9 was also popular. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them. Sounds wise. How do you teach a slave? Probably the same way you teach a child. You beat them. Proverbs 13.24, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Ooh, slave owners, they discipline well. They must love their slaves. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States during the American Civil War, said that slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis through to Revelation. The Bible was used to justify not just slavery in general, but the inferiority of dark-skinned peoples in particular. Many theologians taught that the cursed Canaanites had dark skin. Their ancestor was Ham, the son of Noah. And they misinterpreted the Hebrew word for Ham to mean dark or black. This particular Bible passage has been used throughout history to justify the oppression of people of color for financial gain, for sexual exploitation, and even sport. And when I say sport, I mean hunting. And when I say hunting, I mean hunting and murdering human beings for fun. It was still legal to hunt the sand bushmen in South Africa until 1936. 1936. And it wasn't much better in Australia with the Aboriginals. Even today, the story of Ham is still being quoted by those who believe in racial segregation. The pastor of Appleby Baptist Church in Nacogdoches in Texas wrote on his website in 2013 that the proof of the presence of God among the Israelites was the absence of the black-skinned folk of Canaan. He said that God is a separator 
rather than a mixer. And, and inter, interracial marriages are the work of the devil. Now, that's obviously an extremist quote, and you can find people quoting anything you like. Uh, he quotes scripture, and that's the point I'm making. You can use God's word to justify any case you like. Many Hutu pastors in Rwanda preached 1 Samuel 15, 2-3 to justify the murder of their Tutsi neighbours during the 1994 Rwandan genocide. If you're not familiar with 1 Samuel 15, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. But we're not, when we preach that one, the Amalekites, they're the Tutsis. And they opposed God's, the God-fearing Hutu people. And so it is God's will that we strike them down and we do not spare man or woman, child, infant. It is God's will. 800,000 people were killed over 100 days in an overwhelmingly Christian country. How does that happen? Word of God. Still today, the biblical interpretation of Westboro Baptist Church inspires that congregation to protest at the funerals of killed Marines, killed in combat, and the sufferers of HIV AIDS who have succumbed to their illnesses. With the slogans, God hates fags. Fags die, God laughs. Where does this dark, twisted theology come from? It comes from the Bible. That's where hateful people end up when they take a few selected parts of the Bible and they don't give their minds to God and don't allow the Holy Spirit to teach them his truth. The worst heresies in church history come from the Bible and an unrenewed mind. The Bible on its own is not enough because we still have to interpret it and then apply it in our context today. To interpret it accurately and apply it with integrity, we need his Holy Spirit and we need a renewed mind. A mind that loves God and has been given to him to do with what he will. And what does God do with your mind when you give it to him? He renews it. He sanctifies it. He takes your old mind, and he gives you the mind of Christ. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
renewing of your mind. Renewing. It's a present continuous verb. Looking at the, at the pass on that. And an action that is occurring in the present and is active and ongoing into the future. Is the renewing of our minds a one-off event that occurs on conversion or the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And we can debate another time whether they're one and the same thing or distinct events. Or is the renewing of the mind a process that stretches out day after day? As each day we hop back up on the altar and offer ourselves as living sacrifices and allow him to sanctify us a little more. Allow him to transform us more. Allow him to renew our minds just a little bit more. I've heard some testimonies of radical renewal and transformation overnight. Just insane, demonstrative transformation. People who just think differently straight away. It's like suddenly scales are dropped off uh, off the eyes like it happened with Saul and just everything is different. People have testimonies like that. That is not my testimony. Mine has been very much a long journey of God taking each day what I offer up to him and sanctifying that, making that my offering holy, setting it apart and transforming that part of me into the likeness of Christ. God does great things when you let him. When you give him something to work with, And that's the deal with free will. Free will means we are free to choose how much we allow God to work in our lives. How much we are prepared to surrender to him. You don't give him anything. You don't lay anything down. Then you don't get the benefit of that being in his hands. You don't get the benefit of him going to work on that because he hasn't got it still in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
this renewed mind, it's just, it's not just this cognitive process, created process that we were all born with and has developed over time. It is something so much more than that. A renewed mind has the Holy Spirit hardwired in. He becomes an integral part of our processing. He gives us a new operating system, gives us a new BIOS, a new paradigm for how we think. As the Holy Spirit works in us as our teacher and our sanctifier, our counselor, our guide, we come to see the world as he sees it. We come to read his word as he wrote it. We interpret situations and respond as he would because the Holy Spirit has given us and is awakening in us the mind of Christ. And as our mind is renewed, we start to think with Christ's mind rather than our old carnal mind. With a renewed mind, not only will you come into an understanding of revelation that you've been blind to before, but you will also come to get a perspective on your circumstances and the world around you that is divine. That is his. Take, for example, Peter in Acts chapter 10. Turn there if you got the word with me. Now, Peter has been raised in a very clear, very specific worldview. From childhood, he was raised in the Word of God. He was raised in the Torah. He had a well-established paradigm for morality, for faith. Who God is and what he's supposed to do with that. Not only that, but he had walked in flesh and in spirit with, with Jesus as his disciple and as a part of his inner circle. He'd been there to receive firsthand the teaching of, of Jesus and also an explanation of what, that, of what that often cryptic teaching actually meant. And yet, his mind was still unrenewed. Acts chapter 10 from verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the door, um, the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the year, things that would not have been kosher to eat. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. Behold, the men who had seen had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgiving, for I have sent them myself. Peter was perplexed because what he saw in the vision and what he discerned was from God was completely contrary to everything that he had been raised in. No, by no means, Lord, will I do what I am starting to understand from this vision because, no, I have never touched such a thing. That is not how I've been raised. That's not what your word says. This is what must be going on inside of him. But in this vision, God is giving him something new, something that he has not been in before. God has a very specific purpose for Peter. He is opening up the gospel to a people who have not had it before. He's opening the gospel to the Gentiles, and he's equipping his people to take the word to him, in this case Cornelius. But locked in his old thinking, Peter can't do that. People can't go. Um, Peter couldn't go into the into the home of this Gentile man, even if he is a a God fearing man. He'd just he'd trip over something, and the next thing you know, he'd be sinning. But there, in that vision, the Spirit is redefining some things for him, because it's a new day, and there's a new mission that God is rolling out. But to step into that. Peter had to give his mind to God and let God take that mind and redefine what he thought truth was, shape it and point it in a new direction, possibly cast out some things that might not be necessary anymore, or as the scripture puts it, obsolete, and put back in what was new for him. And to his credit, Peter got up, he obeyed the Lord, he went with those men, and Cornelius and his household came to amazing faith. But he had to he had to lay something down. He had to lay down what from childhood he had believed to be true. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not touch. What would you be prepared to lay down? If God called for it. This all starts with the realization and the confession that the mind that you're thinking with is your own and not his. That your thinking is unsanctified and unrenewed. And that you do not understand all that he has for you. And you don't see the world all the people around you, 
or even yourself the way he sees you. If you can appreciate that, confess it, and start to lay down your mind, your thinking, your theology, and let him renew it, then there is miraculous transformation along that path. And I don't believe that journey's starting today. This is part of what it means to follow him. I'm sure we've been doing this bit by bit along the way, and, and God is faithful and continues to work in us. But, and this has certainly happened with me, constantly I hit a stumbling block. Something that I think is too sacred to let go. And that's when, I, when I'm uncomfortable laying down my mind and giving my mind to him and loving him with all my mind, trusting him to know what the truth is and to do a work of truth within me. Surely not, Lord, no. I can't believe that. I can't, I can't touch that. I've never done such an unholy thing. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. Now, I don't want to set up an argument to justify any crazy thing that comes along. We pick up the crazy, we go the extreme when we're using this. Our unrenewed mind. In a renewed mind, with our mind in his hands, we don't end up in the crazy. When the Holy Spirit is leading us, we don't end up in the crazy. And the extremist parts of of my practice of faith and my belief, I have ended up in the crazy when I received from him a seed of truth. I'm like, oh, sweet. I've got it, God. I've got it, God. I'm all good. Yeah, I'm, I'm sweet. And I'll run off and I'll start applying my own mind to that and go wherever that leads. And I can take things crazy places. Believe me. But that's not the way that discipleship works. That's not the way that spiritual growth works. You don't just take a little bit and then go off and work out the rest yourself. Every day it's with him. You don't work it out for yourself. He is our teacher. He's the one that explains his word. He's the one who is best to interpret his word. Not the blogger that you like or the theologian with the textbook that you like. Not the stuff that seems to make more sense. It's a daily journey with him. Second Corinthians 10.5 We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Whose rebellious thoughts do you think we take captive? Taliban's? Yeah, probably. Islamic State? Definitely. The liberals? Yeah, probably. No. We don't take thought no, captive the thought of other people that we don't agree with. We don't have power over someone else's thinking. We have power over our own thinking. The only thoughts that we can take captive are 
our own. We can't control people's thinking. Efforts by Christians to accomplish that have left countless people tortured, traumatized, and dead. All in God's name. No, the thoughts we capture and make obedient to Christ are our own. With the Spirit of God active in us, we become, we come to discern thoughts that are not aligned to His heart and His mind. We will have a sense that we're, what we're thinking and what we're feeling isn't right. And we can choose to ignore that prompting of the Spirit. We can choose to suppress that feeling and allow that unrenewed thought to grow into an opinion or a belief or a doctrine. And we can start to build some scripture around it. We can allow the Holy Spirit to reveal the true nature of that thought. Take it captive. Sanctify it. Bring our thinking into alignment with Christ. And in that, he renews our mind. And this is what I have had to do so many times. When talking to an attractive woman who is not my wife, take captive any thought that is not godly. Make it obedient to Christ's perfect holy mind. It's what I have to do when I'm in a heated debate with someone that disagrees with me and my arrogance, my pride rises up. I've got to take captive that thought which is not of him. I've got to make that obedient to Christ. This is what I have to do when I'm driving in rush hour or on the phone to the bank or my internet provider. When my daughter drags my favorite guitar outside and down the concrete path. I thought you wanted to play guitar, Daddy. (sighs) Captive, captive. (laughs) Who am I kidding? I'm having to do this all the time. How many unsanctified thoughts do you have? I have a lot. I have a lot. It's a constant battle. This Second Corinthians 10, this is a battle pa- passage. This is spiritual warfare. That's what it's about. But the war isn't out there with some scary external army of terrorists. It's in here. It's with the terrorist within me. It's with the unredeemed thinking within me. It's with my flesh. That's what I need to take captive. How do I know that my thinking is off? I I slow down. I actively engage with the Holy Spirit. Instead of thinking to myself, just thinking within the closed system that is my carnal mind, I think to him. I enter into an ongoing, 
open conversation with the God who is in me. The only one who can renew my thinking. I train myself to talk to him, not myself. He becomes my thought process. Every question that I have, every question that comes to me, every idea that pops up, every response I have to any kind of stimulus, it becomes a prayer. So rather than milling it around within myself, I engage that with him, trusting that he is there with me, that he's listening, and that he can actually engage in that. So my thinking is is no longer a solo project. It's a team effort. Me and the Holy Spirit within me. One thing that marriage has taught me is that I am better with my wife in my life. How much better am I with the Holy Spirit in my life? And I am better because he brings out the best in me. That's the best that he's put in me. But also, I get to lean on him. I get to think with his mind when I know my mind is incapable, when I don't have the answers. And along the way, my mind becomes like his. This is what I think Paul meant when he talked about praying without ceasing. It just doesn't stop. He's always there. He's always on the line. He never hangs up. Your conscience is so much more sensitive to your own rubbish when you're in this place. And you can identify it for what it is. You can repent of the rubbish and receives, receive God's thinking on the matter. That is taking a thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. And that is a mind being renewed. Now, if I was a, a different minister, I would call you up now and I would lay on hands for an impartation of the miraculous that I am carrying. But I don't have a prayer to fix what you've got going on. Whatever's messed up with you and your thinking, I haven't got the power to fix that. I don't walk in the ministry to see you off with a prayer. Some of you will fall down and you'll be a completely different person. It'd be really convenient if I could just do that, wouldn't it? Unfortunately, I haven't yet met the minister who can do that to me really appreciate a shortcut because the alternative means every day you've got to get up and make a decision that you are going to let him you're going to give him your mind and let him change it you're going to make a decision to put aside your own will and accept his will even when it's really unpleasant uncomfortable and difficult Every day, sacrificing. Romans talks about putting, um, um, being a living sacrifice. That means getting up on the altar every day, letting him have his way with you. See why I want a shortcut? But that's what it means to follow him. That's the deal.
every day, making a call. Am I going to follow him today or am I going to do my own thing? The testimony I have is the revelation that God is faithful and that he keeps his promises and that he has promised to complete the good work that he has started in you. And that when we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. That he will renew our minds as we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And so that's what we must do. Not chase the miracle, not chase the shortcut, but commit ourselves to that daily, lifelong journey of walking with him and giving him each day what we can, what our faith allows, and seeing what miraculous work he does with that. We do that, and each day, that miraculous work will build up into something even more special. And what I've come to see amongst all that, it turns out not to be a a grind. It is a joy. He's the best friend that I could ever have. He's the wisest friend I could ever have. He has the power to bless me in ways and provide for me in ways that no one else has. He leads me to the best solutions. He has my best in mind. This is the best path my life could ever follow. It's not easy, but it's awesome. And so that's what he offers you. Now you get to choose what you want to do with that. And not just now. But tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And what I find is that it's easier when I'm in the fellowship of brothers and sisters of doing the same thing, who can encourage me along the way, with people who can call out thinking which is not of God. Because the Holy Spirit is in them too. And sometimes maybe they're listening to to him more than I am. That is the environment that he has called us each to be in. Accountable to each other. Walking together. Growing together. Holding each other accountable. And so yeah, we hammer that constantly here because... We have the strongest conviction that that is what God wants to do among us. It's in community. So if you're not in a discipleship group, please can I urge you, find one that you can make that kind of connection and give yourself over to that process. Submit yourself under one another. Go in with an open mind, a soft heart to receive, discerning in Scripture and the Spirit what is of Him. And giving of yourself what he's put in there as well. And through his word. And through his church, his people. The Holy Spirit will lead us to all truth. Let's pray.
Lord, if I had a prayer to fix the rubbish, the brokenness in me, I would offer it just constantly. You alone have the answer to what is messed up in me, what is messed up in my thinking, as is the case for each of my brothers and sisters here this morning. I see how you work through Scripture, through my testimony and the testimony of others, Lord, and I know that what you're asking me to do is lay down my mind, that which is so precious to me, and now allow you to shape it, allow you to sanctify it, to renew it, Lord. In fact, you want to give me a mind transplant and give me the mind of Christ, Lord, and help me to let you do that. Help me to trust you to do that work in me. Lord, I want to wake up in the morning with the same confession every day. Lord, have my mind. Lord, have my heart. Have my soul. Have my mind. Have my flesh. Take my strength. Take everything I have. I trust you to do something amazing with it. So I pray, Lord, you'd continue to build faith in me for that confession and to live in it. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well, Lord, that the the seed of this truth, Lord, would be sown deep in their hearts, Lord. And as your spirit continues to minister to that and, and water that, that it would grow into something stronger than what I'm carrying. Something that would truly transform us more into the likeness of Christ. Lord, I pray for our discipleship groups meeting this week and all the weeks to come, Lord, that your truth would abound there, Lord, that the spirit of grace and mutual submission, love for each other would be there in those groups. Together, Lord, would strive for truth, edifying each other, putting each other up in the Lord. I pray you'd protect us from wayward teachings and theologies which might distract us from what you're trying to say. I pray, Lord, you help us discern Scripture as your spirit leads us through it and confirm it, Lord, in our hearts. Renew our minds, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.